Hey there, welcome to another episode of Teams at Work. My name is Daria Gutnick, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Bunch. I'm co-hosting the show with Anthony Rio, who is also my co-founder and our COO. We are on a mission to help anyone become a great leader. And together with our team, we're building an AI leadership coach to achieve exactly that. This podcast is for a new generation of leaders. Every episode, we talk to an inspiring guest who is running a high-performance team or a company to learn about their journey and what they do in their day-to-day to be an effective leader. So no matter if you're leading a team already or simply interested in becoming more effective at work, you can build your leadership skills by investing as little as two minutes a day with our AI leadership coach. If you're curious, download it for free on the Apple App Store today by simply searching Bunch Leadership Coach. Your journey starts with a quick assessment of what kind of leader you are today, and then you will receive personalized daily leadership tips to help you grow faster into the leader you want to become tomorrow. Our guest today is Steve Schlafman, ex-VC turned angel investor turned founder coach. Steve runs a founder coaching boutique called High Output. He has been in the venture game since 2007, and he's one of the most authentic voices in the startup community on Twitter. I really recommend following him at Schlaf, S-C-H-L-A-F. We talked to Steve about his recent decision to walk away from an already raised venture fund that he worked so hard for just days before its launch. And we've also covered how more and more professionals are choosing purpose over pure ambition and career progression. And why it's so hard sometimes to have truly collaborative relationships with your VCs. So really full episode. But also, I believe this was one of the most honest and real conversations we've had on this podcast so far. So we're excited to dive in with you. Hey, everyone. Today is a very special episode because we have Steve Schlafman with us, whom I've been hunting for this podcast for months and months. And I couldn't be more excited to welcome you here today, Steve. Hi. Thanks, Tara. I'm, I'm actually really excited for this. Uh, I've been a long time follower of yours, and I'm glad that the, our schedule is aligned and we're able to make it happen. Super amazing. And of course, here today as well is my co-founder, Anthony. Hey, Anthony. Hey, Daria. Hey, Steve. Let's do this. Let's jump in. Yeah, great to meet you. Great to meet you too. This couldn't be a better timing for this episode, I think, because... As we chatted earlier, Steve, you had a very big decision to make in the past couple of weeks. And of course, I do want us um, and our listeners to kind of better understand and follow your your process and your experience there as well. So let's kick things off on the rather deep end. Um, You just walked away from your new venture fund, which was basically almost closed, I think. Mm -hmm. Tell us how you made that decision and how do you feel about it now? It's interesting because... If you look at what I've been doing the last two years, um, you know, actually backing up, I I, I was an institutional VC for almost a decade at some of the top funds in New York. About five years ago, which we can go into detail, I decided to become a coach and went and got trained and immersed myself in that world. And two years ago, I decided to sort of leave the world of institutional venture behind I actually wasn't public about this, but I, I raised a $5 million, you know, angel fund as, as many, uh, operators are doing these days. And I also operated high output and launched and operated high output, my coaching business. So in a lot of ways I was living this dual life 
for the past 24 months where I was angel investing through this fund, but also investing at, or sorry, coaching as a, as a coach and built a thriving practice. And, uh, I, I kind of had one foot in both worlds and about three months ago, I ultimately decided that I was going to combine these two worlds together. You know, like 20 years of building up into this point, I'm like, oh, I'm going to build this new firm that integrates leadership development and early stage capital. I've cracked the code. It's very hard to pull this off, but if anyone can, I can. And I went out to raise about $7.5 million, so still be relatively small, and uh, had the vast majority of it committed, signed, paperwork was signed, and I sent my investors an email about three weeks ago, and instead of asking them to wire the capital, I, uh, I basically told them that I wasn't going to move forward with the fund. And so I think it's important just to give that context, but that's you know what led to it. And um, I, I would just I I didn't you know as we say in the conscious leadership world, I didn't have a whole body yes to mm-hmm. running this fund despite being at the goal line. And so I said rather than you know committing ten years to go and do this, let's just let's just take a pause and catch your breath and see see what makes sense in the future. And I think a lot of people can relate to this, right? We have lots of decisions to make on a daily basis, specifically founders, but also leaders in companies or even just any anyone out there really every day. And it's just so difficult to um, get to a whole body yes. I, I love that phrase, by the way. Um, and most of the time we don't have the whole body yeses, right? And we still need to mm-hmm. move forward. So I would really love to know a little bit more about how you approached um, making this decision and kind of like listening to yourself, where did you find the courage to, you know, go against the current? So, um, so late in the process, so to say, and like, kind of like, how did you deal with the fear around like disappointing people maybe? And also, um, yeah, just tell us a little bit more about the emotional journey behind it. Yeah. So let's see. Um, I'm going to take a little bit of a different path to answering the question, but I will get there. Um, Momentum is a is a is a powerful force, and iner- inertia and momentum is incredibly powerful. And um, what I ultimately realized is I got caught up in a lot of momentum, and without really taking a step back and thinking about the the implications, not just the implications to my um, to my reputation, but the quality of my life, the kind of work that I'm involved in. And around the summer, like in August, as people are taking vacations, I just said to myself, look, I'm going to basically pause fundraising and then, you know, finish the fundraise in September, launch the fund in October. And by taking that pause and not pitching the fund, I started to lose momentum And that loss of momentum created space for me to step back and start to be like, hmm, is this really what I want? And I think the thing that I started coming back to was I was at the end of my, the the, the angel fund, right? I was finishing deploying that fund. 
And what I found is like, I wasn't getting energy from that exchange with founders from the pitch anymore, right? The, the hunt of the next great deal, the deploying of the capital, the sitting in pitches all day. Like I would look at my calendar and be like, okay, I have these like three pitches today. And what I ultimately began to realize is that the thing that I really love is the authentic conversation with a founder or a leader where they can show up fully as themselves and as can I. And I, there's something about a pitch exchange where there are walls, right? Because there's a power dynamic involved. Like the end of the day, they're, they're trying to sell me something and I have to be, and I, I have to sell myself as well. And so it's a, it's a different kind of exchange. And at the core of it, I just wasn't, fully convinced that that was the exchange that I wanted to have and that I wanted to fully, um, you know, I, I wanted to be uh, impacted by that power dynamic. And, and so I think like part of it was around authentic conversations and relationships with leaders and, and, and really being of service. So that was a big piece of it. I think there's another aspect of it where I was just burnt out. Um, you know, for me, my life, and I actually tweeted this this morning, like my life, my life for the t- past 20 years has pretty much revolved around work. It's all I've thought about 24 seven. Um, and over the last two years launching this angel fund, right. Two years ago, launching high output, scaling up to 15 clients, coaching clients with pretty much unlimited demand for, for my time. I launched the Founder Library, which is a free uh, repository of content for founders to help them navigate their entrepreneurial journey. And I launched uh, Tapestry, which is a, is a project for founders, and finally the ultimate annual review. And so, um, plus invest in fifty companies, right? And so it was craziness, it was madness, and I was just completely burnt out. And what I started to realize was the more time that I spent like diving into tech trends and all these things, I'm just like, that's not giving me energy anymore. Like sitting in pitches isn't giving me energy anymore. The thing that I kept on coming back to was the things that were giving me energy was the coaching conversations, the like ideating a building of like, what could a, a modern coaching company look like? How do I further develop my practice? How do I sharpen my craft? I found like all, all I wanted to do was listen and, and consume content that was all around personal growth, leadership, philosophy, um, linguistics. I mean, you name it, anything related to coaching and serving and helping people, that's all I flocked to. And so to make a long story short, when there was that pause in momentum, I had to look within and really tap into like my, like my nervous system and my energy levels to say, like, is this really what I want to do? And the answer was no. The answer was I, I value other things at this point in my life. And, you know, that's not to say that I'm done investing forever, but I'm like, I need to pause it, at least for the foreseeable future. Um, so I can focus on taking care of myself and diving more deeply into my power as a coach. 
Steve, I, I love, um, first of all, thank you so much. Um, I love the way you put the the moment where you said, it, it, like there was a, a decrease in momentum, but that created an opportunity or, or space that allowed you to sort of like almost tap into that. And I think that's where some people are very difficult. It's very hard for people to lean into that, right? Because it's almost, uh, it's a moment of, um, yeah, it's a moment of change and it's sometimes scary, but um, I appreciate that. And you were, you were talking about the last, like the last 20 years you've put into all this. Where, you're clearly unbelievably passionate about what you've now sort of dedicated your focus to. Where does all this passion come from? Where does like where 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 does this um, dedication and passion come from, for you? I mean, I think there's um, it's it's a it's a question that my coach asked asked me as I was processing this decision. I had a lot of help, so it wasn't just on my shoulders. Um, what drive? He asked me what drives me, and I think there are like a number of things that that drive that drive me. I think one is just a curiosity. I love to learn. It's, I'm an Enneagram type seven for those in the audience who know what the Enneagram is. And that's the enthusiast. Like I, you know, I, I, so I think like, I love adventure. I love learning. I love meeting and learning about people. It's just like in, in my fabric. Um, it's funny, like my friends from high school talk about when I was a, when I was in high school and we'd go to these track meets, um, I would just walk around and all the towns were at the track meet and competing. And I would just go and make friends with all the different people and like want to learn about all these. And it's just been like, I've always had this like innate ability to connect with other people and this desire to, to want to like learn and, and form deep relationships. And so I think that's one. I, and then I think there's probably some, some more like deeper, deeper, um, drives, you know, I think like a sense of security and, you know, being able to, uh, you know, I was raised by a single mother. We didn't come from, uh, you know, even though we, I was fortunate to grow up in a fairly like upper middle class town. We, we absolutely, you know, you know, we're living paycheck to paycheck. So I think there's a little bit of like drive that I have because like, for me, it's about like being able to provide for myself and my family. And so I think there's there's definitely you know a security uh, component that's driving me. I think there's probably an approval component that's driving me probably around <laughs> my relationship with my dad. If I'm just being completely honest and wanting love, and I think there's probably even some around uh, being competitive with my high school friends and all the guys that I like played football with. And um, so I think there's some like deeper seated motivations that drive me but i think at the core of it is i just i love people i love learning and i have a curiosity and i feel like i've now found my lane um to really like dive in and and take that as as far as i possibly can very cool so in a lot of your content you call yourself a recovering vc tell us more about that well i i i that that was in some ways it, it, it's 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 half joking um, so I, as I, as I said earlier, I was a, uh, early stage investor at some of the top VCs in New York city, particularly early stage seed in series a. And, um, I, I personally didn't love institutional investing specifically being a board member. And so for me, there's, there's like real power dynamics there, um, and I mentioned this earlier in the conversation, 
And uh, there were a whole bunch of things about pure play institutional VC that I just didn't, I weren't for me. I'm not saying I'm not, I'm not saying they're, they're good or bad. They're just, they weren't for me. Long partner meetings, sitting in a four hour partner meeting every Monday, um, being in board meetings. Um, I mean, I could go on and on and on. Um, now that said, like being an institutional VC is probably the most privileged job in the world. Um, and so I don't want to lose sight of that. I, I, I as I say to often, like there are people that would probably give their, their, their right, their right foot to, to, to have this job. Um, but it, again, it wasn't for me. And so I, when I say recovering it again, I think it's, it's partly me just being, being a little lighthearted there. Um, what were the top learnings for you from that time? It really seems like it's a, it's an episode in the past, but if you kind of look back and you feel, yeah, I took like stuff away from it. These are the things I learned the most. What were those things? I would say that there are things about myself and things about the world that I learned and how the world works. Myself, I learned it reinforced how much I love people. It reinforced how much I love working with entrepreneurs because of their energy and their vision and ability to solve really hard problems and, and, and captivate people's minds, whether it's employees or, or investors. And so I, I love, I love that aspect of it. Um, I, the achiever in me loved the nonstop go, 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 waking up 8 a.m. breakfast, meetings all day, some email at night, events in the night. Like I just, I, it was nonstop. And I, I, I pre in that phase of my life, I, I loved that. Um, I loved just the constant learning and stimulation of the profession. Um, as it relates to learning about the world, I learned a few things, one of which is, um, and this might be very B Buddhist to me, but the, like the world is always shifting, right? The world, like nothing is ever solid. And if you choose to be an investor for the long term over multiple cycles, you basically have to constantly change the way you think about the world. And you have to stay on top of all the latest trends or know which trends you want to focus on. And so I think one of the big learnings is the, like, you're never going to stop the innovation machine, right? The world, like, like this is it's momentum and, you know, like it's going to be very difficult to get in the way of Moore's law, you know, and you can put in wars and famines and, pandemics and the, like, the world is going to move forward with or without you. And so you basically have a choice to whether you want to keep up with it. So I think that was one of the big learnings for me. Um, and the other is, is just knowing where to spend your time. Again, there's so many different, especially today, I'd say now more than ever, um, when you have these like big, massive shifts, you have like, you know, everything from remote work, climate, crypto, health. I mean, we can go on and on and on. Um, and the world is moving at such a pace that I think it's very, very, very difficult to specialize or in or like, unless you have a team, it's like, you almost either have to, it's very hard. Let, actually, let me say it differently. It's very hard to be a generalist 
in this world because things are moving so quickly that it's impossible to keep up if you're solo. At least that was my experience. So anyhow, there's a bunch of other learnings. You know, for me, another big one is that companies are complex human systems. Uh, Even as a board member, I would always say like the thing I have the most control over is the what decisions I make as an invent, like which like the, the, the decision to invest or not invest is the most important decision. And that you, I mean, you have the ability to influence a company, but at the end of the day, it's a lot of it is out of your control and being okay with that. Um, and so that, that was another thing that I learned is, you know, as much as I want to think I'm, I'm a, like, I'm, I'm helpful. And I think like part of the reason why I decided to become a coach is because I felt that as an investor, I wasn't having as big of an impact as I would like. Super interesting. I actually, it's, it's a really great um, kind of comparison, right? That coaches are much more impactful, of course, to founders and, and leaders and executives than their investors. And I was just, when you were speaking, thinking that I, I guess it has to do with like safety and trust. And of course, the fact that you know, as a coach, that person is incentivized to help you grow and like wants the best and there is alignment in objectives, so to say. So there's definitely this part, but I also wonder how much just the interaction quality and the nature of communication and how you actually create that relationship also impacts the fact um, that there is just much more, much more impact zone. Yeah. And that's that's not to say that investors can't have an impact. I know, I know countless VCs that have a tremendous impact on the companies and the entrepreneurs they work with. So I, I don't, I don't want to give away the false impression that investors aren't useful. Um, now that said, um, I do think the power dynamic is real and that the financial structure of the deal and the various stakeholders make it such that, um, yeah, make it make it such that the entrepreneur has to be more protective and guarded in that exchange. I'll never forget, actually, around the time I was getting into coaching, I was on the board of a company called Breather. Uh, Julian Smith is, um, I led their Series A, was on the board for, for, um, for, I guess, like almost three years. And Julian, I'm an investor in his new company practice in the coaching space. Um, but the reason why I bring up Julian is I remember he and I were sitting in a breather uh, just outside of Union Square in New York City as I, after I left RRE. So I was no longer on the board. And he said, yeah, listen, like, you know, I'm, I'm, in some ways, I'm, I'm, I'm glad now that you're not on my board so we can actually have, like, deeper conversations. Oh, because, conversations. Yeah. yeah, because, like, the, the deeper the, the investor is in the company, the more the walls came up. At least that was true for him. And so if you put a check in, walls go up, right? If you're on the board, walls go up. If there's a a pro rata decision that needs to be made, um, if things aren't going well, walls go. And so he was basically saying, you know, that like that dance between investor and entrepreneur is a real one. And I was actually reflecting on this earlier this morning where it's like my, like at the end of the day as a coach, I get paid for service. So it's not like I'm doing this out of the goodness of my heart, right? Like at the end of the day, I have to support a family and, and, and provide, you know, a stable future for, for myself and others. Now that said, 
I do think it is one where as I show up, I'm always asking myself, like, what's the best thing for like, what, what is, what is the leader need? What's good for them? What would be most you? I'm never, ever, ever once thinking about, you know, having to protect some sort of ownership or I don't have a fiduciary duty to my LPs to generate some sort of outcome. This morning, I had the epiphany, which I think is an interesting one, which I said nirvana for me would be like not how like it, it would be the purest form of service is basically being able to do what I do for free. Now, I'm not in a position to do that now, um, but I think that would be that would be nirvana for me. So I can basically just choose who I want to work with and do it for free. Um, and to me, that's like the purest form of service and not necessarily expect anything. Well, Steve, it's, it's really interesting you, you bring this up. And so I'm going to detour from the question I was going to ask you real quick to, to just comment on this because I just got off the call with a sort of VC angel type person. And what she was saying was founders, founders really underestimate the small checks that sometimes, and she's finding it more and more that the small checks, the one to 5k checks, the really small ones, sometimes these people can have a a, a much larger impact on the founder's well-being. It's not even about the tangible connections or like, are they connecting to who and those deals are getting done and they're not growing the business. But for founders, even in like the later, er, later early stages, so not like the pre-pre-pre-seed stages, she was saying those kinds of people can be exactly who you need versus the large institutional VCs who... Um, and maybe there's some zeitgeist around these people not being as helpful anymore. And I guess we should all caveat this with the fact that there are amazing VC investors out there, obviously, obviously. But I do find that fascinating. I would love to get your take on take on that sort of approach. I think the operator angel phenomenon is a is is a powerful one, and it's it's a existence that I've lived in the past two years. And I think the reason why it's so powerful is because, as you pointed out, Anthony. Um, you know, even though there's dollars at work, um, from my experience, the vast majority of founders don't view that as like institutional capital. They view it more as like supportive capital. And I think that that's, that's a big, 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 big difference. Um, and, and so what I've seen as an angel, even though I didn't, I'm putting this in quotes, like I didn't coach the founders that I've invested in, in that, in that first fund, I have had a number of like very, very deep and authentic and meaningful conversations with founders in a way that I never would have had in a million years as an institutional investor. I just wouldn't have. And I think that dynamic with angel operators is a really important one. And it's a, it's a trend that's going to continue to persist. And I don't think that's going any, I think it's only going to accelerate. And so I think that's a net net positive for founders. Now that the, the, the only, the only trade-off there is that angel operators, the vast majority of them have day jobs and are incredibly busy running their own companies or being in, you know, highly important roles. And so the key is just how much time do they have to devote, especially if it's a high volume and like a higher volume investment strategy. But I do think it's a, it's a very, very important resource for founders, if they can get a cap table filled with supporters. And I think we're going to see more of that. Like I would, I I would get, yeah, I would get emails all the time where it's like, Hey, we have this amazing lead and I love what you put out on Twitter and we're saving room. Like, 
you know, 250K for like, I forget, like call it like 10 angel operators that can help support me. I'm hearing that almost every single day now. You're still investing in those? I, I, and I actually updated my, my personal website, schlaff.me. I, I'm actually pausing all investing for the time being. Um, I think this is for me, I'm just trying to step into a space where I'm, I'm only going to coach. Like right now I have nine clients. I'm about to onboard three more and then I'm, I'm done for the time being. Um, and I'm just literally going to coach and kind of figure out what I want to be when I grow up. Um, but I, it's, it's a, it's an odd space for me because as Anthony, we discussed like what drives me, you know, I've been going hard, you know, all I thought about was work for 20 years. I'm, I've been very career oriented and I want to, I want to, I want to coach. I want to learn. I want to write. And like, that's all I'm going to do for the time being. And I'm not in any rush to figure anything out. Like, as I've been saying, like my, my, my mantra right now, I have several of them, but one of which is just like, and I know this is going to come across as woo woo. It's more, more being less doing. Mm. And, and it's just simplify, simplify, simplify. It's like try to remove as much complexity out of the system as possible so that I have space to catch my breath and, and really figure out like, what do I want this next chapter to be? And as I talk with my coach, like, honestly, like he, he's, he's amazing. I'll give him a shout out. His name's uh, Josh uh, Kalpow. I'm, I'm probably butchering his last name, but he's a clinical psychologist based out of uh, Birmingham, Alabama. I was introduced to him by another investor that works with him. And, you know, he, he's inviting me to step into like, what if, you just coach 15, you know, 12 to 15 founders and like you write and that's all you do. And like be a dad and take care of your body and, and like introducing these other possibilities that, you know, frankly that, I mean, even three weeks ago, that, that, that idea was like ridiculous because I wouldn't know what to do with myself. But so I'm kind of trying to feel into that. I, I doubt that's going to be what I ultimately choose, but I'm trying to like, try on all these different possibilities to see, okay, like what, what is it that I want? And it's just not from a career perspective. It's also life, you know, being a dad and, you know, trying to take care of myself. Like I went fly fishing the other week and was like, Oh my God, like, like, yeah. Being not, on not the river do, for four, yeah. Busy investor. <laughs> and like, I wasn't, I wasn't. And then I'm like, Oh, like I could go and get lost in fly fishing for as a hobby for, for the rest of my life. And so like, even this idea of like hobbies is like, I, I ride my bike, but the achiever in me is like, no, I'm riding my bike till I get fit and to, to, to work my body. But it's just like, what would it, what would it mean to have a hobby outside of like fitness and tech and, and even coaching, frankly. So I'm asking myself some of these big questions. It's truly, truly inspiring. And I, I can only, um, yeah, I'm super excited about it. Uh, selfishly, I think, because I do think you probably will write more and we all will benefit so much from it because every time you write, it's just really helpful. It's very authentic. It's very inspiring. So 
I am extremely happy about this period of your life. And I, I'm pretty sure many other founders out there are as well, but also shout out, of course, to your family and your partner that um, I, I, I do think um, it resonates with a lot of people that are listening. They're like nonstop, 24-7, career, career, career. And it's, often it's not even career, right? Like we talk about this with Anthony many times where we have crazy schedules. We are on this for years. We are on this 24-7, like without any breaks. It's mission. Like we get mm -hmm. out of bed because there's users writing us emails and saying, oh my God, you built this tool. It helped me in a situation where I didn't know better. It was changing my life. Don't stop. And then your head is like, I can't stop. I need to get up at <laughs> 7 a.m. every day. And I do think it takes a toll and it is a very difficult path to kind of walk over specifically long stretches of time. So I'm really um, grateful that you role model that behavior around like, it's maybe also okay to just take a break and like kind of figure stuff out. And maybe you, you will, and maybe you won't. But it's just so inspiring to see that this is possible. And it's not mm -hmm. only, you know, my like therapist or coach or whatever, like suggesting it to me, but like, people like Steve are doing it. Like <laughs> Steve can do it. I can maybe do it too in like a few years or whatever. And I think that's like, the, that's a very important signal, I think, to the community um, that is very timely sent, I, I believe. Mm. Well, there are two threads in there that we can pull on. One is around having support from my, my wife, Eliza. Um, you know, I wouldn't have been able to do this without, without her. Um, and and for a whole bunch of reasons, but to her credit, she just has like unwavering support of my career and has the trust in me to be able to ultimately chart that path forward and obviously has, you know, material impacts on her, right, in her life. So I think like, you know, first of all, like wouldn't be able to do it. Second is she is a founder, right? She's the founder and CEO of a company called The Sill. Uh, it's a direct-to-consumer brand for houseplants. She started over a decade ago, um, one of the category leaders in the space. And, you know, seeing her build the company is a really, was actually one of the main inspirations for becoming a coach because I saw how, well, what she was dealing with as a founder behind the scenes. And I juxtapose that to my experience working with founders as a board member and an institutional investor. And I was like, there's such a disconnect. There's so much that goes unsaid. And so I, I just want to like, you know, obviously um, give Eliza a shout out because um, I wouldn't have been able to do this without her. And I think, you know, given that she's a founder and a CEO, she's going on. I mean, that's all she thinks about aside from our daughter. And, you know, I'm, I'm a distant third. And, um, you know, I think like being with her and seeing how she shows up for her company, it gives me an immense amount of empathy uh, for, for those that I work with. Um, so that was one thread that I just wanted to, to, to touch on. And the second one is... I'm trying to recall, I'm, I'm now drawing a blank. The, so we the, should... the, the tech community obsession with the 24-7 go, go, go. Oh, and, yes, and kind thank of like... you. Right. And the, the second thread that I, I, I want to pull on is um, how do you take a pause when you're a founder and you've taken venture capital, you have a team, 
There are all these expectations. You, you're either searching for product market fit or you're at your post product market fit. And you're just like, I need to grow. I, I, I just possibly can't reset. And, and when you said that, the thing that came to mind is one of my, my existing clients is a, in, I mean, just remarkably talented individual, um, more of a, a product and um, technical mind. And he is just, he's, he's burning the candle on both ends and has been for months and months and months. I mean, we're talking about 80 to 90 hours a week. And about two, two weeks ago, um, he came to me and was basically burnt out. And I basically, and I, I, I am, the way I show up for my clients is predominantly as a coach, but there are times where I'll say, I can show up about any way you want, right? Coach, investor, advisor, but it's going to come with a different, I'm going to show up in a different way for you, depending on what you want. And I said to him, may I put on my advisor hat? I asked him for permission and he said, yeah, sure, of course. Um, and I say, you, you have to take a break. You, you literally have to, you have to take a break because you're like, you're, you I can just see the impact that this is having on you. And, you know, to his credit, he basically went on Airbnb, booked himself a, a, a retreat of sorts and went away for a week, emailed his team and was like, I got to get away. I need a break. And he did. And, you know, he was texting me throughout and journaling and writing and was pretty much off email the most, most of the time. And, you know, we had a session last week and he just said that was the single best thing you've ever done for me. So I, I, the reason why I share that story is that it is if you are feeling burnt out, despite all of the things that we tell ourselves, it's like it is possible. It's just going to take sacrifice and communication and leaning on your team to give yourself the space. But I think what it come even before giving yourself the space, it's giving yourself the permission to be able to do that, which is the hardest part. And and we talked about before we jumped on on the recording, we talked about the um, annual review uh, template that you developed and shared with us. And one of the things actually that it did for me now that I was listening to you, I realized was that it helped me understand. And I totally can relate to like. The description of a VC-backed founder um, going at, a, at like a high speed for a long time. And at one point, um, I was afraid to burn out again and kind of mm -hmm. like be in a state where I need to give things up. And I really didn't want to give bunch up ever and still don't want to. And it, I, I was really afraid of that point where like, oh, it's too late now. I actually need to make sacrifices. And one thing that helped me realize when I was reflecting at the end of December, I think the first time I actually did it, I realized that in those quarters where I actually have like a long weekend or like four days of break in a regular interval, every like latest every three months, I actually don't get to that point of this pure exhaustion as easily and as quickly. And there's also, of course, like weekly rituals where at least one night in the week needs to be a date night. And then at least one day on the weekend needs to be completely off computer and all these things like that. I kind of already knew, but this, 
um, realization that the quarterly rhythm is just as important. And if you don't take mini breaks in between, you actually get to this exhaustion period so much faster. And it's really possible to see if you don't kind of go through your calendar meticulously and actually look like, how did I feel this month? What did I get? What did I achieve? How did I feel this month? What did I achieve and why? And then I started realizing this and it was, it literally changed my life um, mm. in that sense. And definitely the life of my partner as well. So mm-hmm. huge like thanks once again for, for the template. I think it's really um, important to kind of like find these, these rhythms in your own life that actually can like, keep you going for a long time. It well, it sounds like you've done a lot of work on yourself to, to know how to best structure your days and even your weeks and months to be able to at least I wouldn't give go your, as far. <laughs> give, give, give your, I think you're probably being a little difficult on yourself. Um, all right. But it, it, I call these daily architectures. So it's like, how are you designing your days to basically have the biggest impact and achieve the, the optimal level of output? And not output for the sake of output, but for the things that are really going to matter. And I recommend for pretty much every every leader I work with is to to block out 30 minute chunks interspersed throughout the day even if it's 15 minutes to just like catch your breath and like step away maybe take a walk around the block just to like reset because um I view like attention is like a battery and if we're just constantly going I mean, I've done back-to-back-to-back meetings, days for, I mean, years. Years. And by those end of those days, I've been fried. And so now what I'd say is like, I think that energy management is so critical. And so giving yourself that ability to recharge that battery, you have no idea how much even 15 minutes of like a a 15-minute walk will refresh you or 10 minutes of breathing and meditation. Like it really makes a huge difference. Um, and so I think like we're, we're, we've talked about like a pot, like I'm taking an extended pause in my life. We've then talked about my client taking like a week long pause to really recharge, but you can take a pause in these short increments. If you, again, give yourself the time and the space to be able to do it. And as I always say, like being a CEO of a startup is a sprint. It is a mad dash it is probably going to be the hardest thing that you do. Um, you are going to have to work incredibly hard and long hours. It's, it's part of it. Now that said, if you find yourself working 80, 90, hundred hours a week, even 70, you know, I would always ask like, are, are you, are you delegating enough? You know, are, and are you focused on the right things? Um, and because I think that it is really important to be able to design your days and weeks that are giving yourself enough time for recovery. You know, last thing I'll say is like, think about a, like a, like an amazing athlete, whether it's, you know, an, an NFL player or, you know, a, a, or someone in the English premier league, right? Like those athletes understand that it's all about intense training in periods of intense training, followed by rest and recovery, followed by rest and recovery. And um, I think we need to celebrate more of that in the startup culture, um, because at the end of the day, 
you know, these, I, I view founders as like high performance, uh, you know, cognitive mental athletes. It's literally what Anthony tells us, I think, on a regular basis. You'll literally, I, <laughs> I remember you saying this, Anthony, so many times, exactly the same sentence. So I yeah, definitely. Yeah. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, just because we're behind a computer, it somehow is a little bit, it's, it feels different. But at the end of the day, it's, it's all, I think sometimes we feel like it's not physical, right, Steve? I think because we're sitting at a computer and we're not running, it's not physical. Your brain is a muscle. That attention is a muscle. At least that's my, I mean, that's my personal take on it. I completely um, agree. When your muscle's fatigued, you need to pay attention to that. And I think mm -hmm. um, it's far easier, actually. And the reason I, I think the reason the metaphor works for me is because it's far more dangerous to overwork that muscle and then end up in a state of severe injury because you didn't listen to the, the, the signs of fatigue because we're not taught that that's signs of fatigue. And I think obviously, and I'm sure your, your clients say the same, I mean, highly ambitious people are the, the people who are most prone to it, right? Mm -hmm. At least that's yeah. my, my personal take on it. And, and I think you bring up a really great point, Anthony, whereas if you think about like fatigue is not the same as like acute pain, Right. Like if I, if I, um, like actually right now I have a foot injury because I've been, oh, I've no. been walking around New York, like a maniac and injured myself. Um, I feel that pain. Like I literally cannot walk because of my foot, um, being overworked. There isn't the same amount of pain. Like it, it, it it's, your energy levels are impacted, but I think we're, we're conditioned to just push through that. And it's like, Oh, we'll make up on, you know, we'll, we'll get, we'll catch up on sleep on the weekends or we'll, you know, we'll get and And there, so, so there isn't the same amount of pain I, I make up. Um, though, interestingly enough, um, I, I'm so I've been sober for about six and a half years. And I find that when I get less than six hours of sleep, six and a half, six hours of sleep, um, I feel completely hungover. Like I can't function. And so, um, you know, multiply, same, multiply that over days, weeks, months, years. And it's, you know, you're, you're, I, I, I believe you're, you're in, you're really inhibiting your ability to, to perform. Well, Steve, have you read, have you read, um, have you read the fifth discipline? Do you know uh, this book? Is this Peter Senge? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I, I think that was sort of the revelation for me because he talks about the fifth discipline being the systems thinking concept. It's actually the slow things that eat us alive, right? And I think that actually segues me into my sort of, um, they eat us alive slowly and that's why we don't see them. We don't sense them. Mm -hmm. um, they're harder to sense. They come at us slowly and so you, you don't pay attention to them, but then they eventually have the spike and it kind of destroys you. That kind of segues me into my, my next question though, which is you have this amazing article online about um, investing in your, uh, your co-founder relationships mm. and um, weathering the storm and it's all about conflicts and conflict resolution. You also have that amazing tweet where it's like, if you're not having conflict on a regular basis, something's underlying it. And I think these are kind of these slower things that, that we have trouble with as, as I guess, leaders and founders that may, you know, it's not always this acute conflict that happens. It's sort of maybe sometimes the slow stuff that's simmering under the, under the surface that we're not paying attention to. Would love for you to extrapolate more on that article because I think it's by and large my, my favorite article you've written. And, and why is it so important to kind of like maintain your relationships in a structured manner? Yeah. 
for for those in the audience that haven't read it, I I, I published it probably uh, this this post probably in February of uh, of this year, twenty twenty one. Uh, and, and basically I was doing a lot of work, or, uh, around co-founders and a, a friend of mine, uh, and I, Eric Friedman, who's just an amazing, uh, operator coach, he and I launched this thing called tapestry. And so we had been spending a lot of time with co-founders. I put out this post that basically was saying that, um, it's in, very critical, uh, very critical to invest in your co-founder relationship to weather any potential storm. And as I said earlier, companies are complex human systems, right? Not only is the company always shifting, but us as individuals is shift are, are always shifting, right? And so, as a company scales, situations change, people change, people can't grow. And so it, it creates a, an interesting, um, like almost like a, an environment where conflict can happen. And um, I think more and more, um, I think we need to embrace this idea that co-founder relationships are one that should be cultivated and built over time, not like, hey, we're going to be co-founders and you know, now we're going to be on this 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 path together. But it's like, how do you be really intentional about the kind of relationship you want to have, given like the, the, all the the changes that are happening within and outside of us? We have a lot of founders in the audience typically that work, of course, with co-founders, but also with their direct teams. And a question that we get frequently around this is, um, what can we do to prevent conflict? And I almost always feel. Um, quite uncomfortable in a way because I like, of course, conflict can be good and it's not actually good to fight against conflict. It's important that you channel it. Do you have any type of like tactical advice for um, young founders that are starting out or managers that are starting to lead teams? What are kind of like the first steps um, that you would recommend to either do or look at or mental models to kind of like reframe the situation around conflict that can help someone on the ground that just just starting out to find a better relationship towards conflict. Yeah. Well, I think the first step or a, a first step, I don't, I don't want to be so declarative is getting comfortable revealing yourself. And what do I mean by that? Being able to, sh to show up with your co-founder and be able to express what you believe, what you think, what you feel in a way where you're not going to be attacked. And I think that that is probably the most important thing to start is how do you build a relationship where you can show up and express what you're experiencing? And do it in a way that allows you to express it, get it off your chest, and then be heard. And I think just that ability to express and then be heard is an incredibly important first step. And it's like a muscle, right? Like if if you don't work at it, it will it will atrophy. So I think like a first step is just revealing. And in conscious leadership group, um, I'm not a coach under their umbrella, but I, I study underneath Jim and Diana and the amazing coaches there. Um, they, they have this prompt that those in the training in, in our cohort are, are encouraged to start 
our post by which say, if you really knew me, you would know that. Right. And such a good prompt. I, and I think it's such a great prompt um, where, you know, that way it's like you give someone two minutes just to riff on that prompt, let the other party reflect back. This is what I, th- I think I heard you say. This is what came up for me. And just doing that is, you know, is a, is a great way to be, to be revealed and to be known and to be understood. And, ju- and, and, and I think like there are definitely elements of nonviolent communication in there, which I'm also a big believer in. Um, and then the other, honestly, is, and this is also part of conscious leadership group, um, but it's how do you be impeccable with agreements, right? Because what I see a lot of the time with co-founders is that, you know, one co-founder will say they're going to do something um, and they don't necessarily do it, right? And so how do you very early on get aligned and get very, very clear about what an agreement means, right? And it's, you know, who... And also what to do when exactly. you actually kind of can't live up to it, yeah. Exactly. Well, it's who who did what, who does what by when with specificity so that there's understanding about like what what the outcome is, is, is expect what outcome is expected. And if it's, and as soon as the other person in the relationship knows that that agreement isn't going to be met, let's go and renegotiate it. Hey, Dara, I just, I just realized that this isn't going to get done for these reasons. I'd like to renegotiate that agreement with you instead of it being end of day Friday, I really need the weekend to work on it. And then you renegotiate. And I think just by building this into the rhythm and then cascading it across the, uh, across the, the organization has such a profound impact because one of the things I hear a lot from, from both co-founders, but also, um, CEOs is how do I drive more accountability in across the organization? And I think it's starting with impeccable agreements. And if someone doesn't meet the agreement, it's simple, like, you know, and it's not personal and it's, and, and it's just starting to name when these things don't occur, but not in a judgmental way. And just like it, it, like you said, you were going to do this. It wasn't done. Like, what can we learn from it? You know, Matt, Matt Mokery from, um, who's, who's a really well, well, um, known coach. He coaches some of the top executives in Silicon Valley, wrote a, a, an awesome book. I, I believe it's called the great CEO within, you know, he would say that if you're a t- I think what he says is if you're a team of under five, um, and someone doesn't mean an agreement, they're not impeccable with their agreements, um, immediate warning. And if the second time it happens again, they're done. Um, where it's just like early on establishing that there's this culture. And again, like, you know, as we would say in, 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 um, in conscious leadership, executives and leaders that are in, uh, in agreement, you can't be in perfect agreement, impeccable a hundred, like 10 out of 10 times. But like, I think those that are impeccable with their agreements tend to be um, fairly, fairly impeccable 80% of the time. Otherwise, they're negotiating or taking full responsibility and not trying to 
place any blame other than you know than themselves. And so um, I don't I don't know if the right number of like violations is two to let someone go. I think he said in a in a in a bigger organization. I think it's maybe maybe three. But the point is is if you keep on getting these repeat offenders and it starts to happen throughout the organization, it's, it's an issue. So bringing it back to the initial point around impeccable agreements as it relates to co-founders. So how can the two of you get on the same page or three of you, however many to that, like, we're going to practice this and we're going to do our best. And we view this as like, we're just building a muscle and we're probably not going to get it right out of the gate, but we're going to work on it because we think it's going to have a really important um, effect across the company as we scale. Super good advice. Thank you. It's very, very actionable. And, and it, it makes it, tons it, of and sense. It, and there are a ton of other things for co-founders. Again, I would, I would, I would highly, highly, highly encourage, um, I would highly encourage everybody to, to read the article. If, if, if you want to double down on your co-founder relationship or you're just curious, the other thing I would say is, um, something that I, I hear and see a lot of among co-founders, even I invest, I, I, I coach a number of investment partners at some of the top VC funds as well, is um, inability to fully reveal themselves and not being comfortable really sharing you know, what their experience is. And so I would say the other is, is just practicing, saying this is what's true for me. And I'm, I'm not attached to it. Like it's, I don't, What's true for me isn't fact, but this is what I'm thinking. This is what I'm feeling. And um, it's not good or it's not bad, but like the ability to really get known even and be able to like step into that courage because um, it's hard to practice. It's very, very, very hard to practice, but it's, it's a super, it's a superpower once you cultivate it. 100% Steve. I I think those are uh, relevant for us uh, for um for everyone just as much as it's relevant for Daria and I. So I think that's super super um um super super well said and um some really actionable stuff there. I know we're approaching the hour and we always save our um one of our um I guess most reflective questions for the end, because as you know, we're in the business of helping people out who are basically, I mean, not everybody, but getting started on their leadership journeys and their management journeys. And, and, um, we bring a lot of folks on the podcast who have tons of, tons of, uh, um, experience and advice to share. And this question is, um, as important as any of the others. I mean, if you could look back at yourself at the beginning of your journey. Um, and a lot of people's leadership journeys started before their management journeys because, you know, they're taking initiative when they're young, but they don't become a manager until later in life. Wherever you want to start, what what leadership tips or what what actionable advice would you go back and give young young Steve Schlafman right as he was getting getting started with everything? I think there I think there are a few pieces of advice that I would have given young Steve, um, one of which is. You and I, I think this is probably relevant for some of the listeners, which is you can still be a leader um, and not have any direct reports, right? And, and this idea of like being a leader of one, um, I think is is an important concept that I wish I had grokked earlier in my career for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, I think there's a there's a, an, another one which is just around, um, I think, communication, specifically around agreements, as we just talked about. Um, and just the, this idea of like, 
creating really, 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 really tight, strong agreements and renegotiating because so few people practice that it like really stands out. And if you're not a CEO, let's say you're a mid-level executive and you're practicing this, it stands out. And that's, you know, how you manage up. That's how you build trust. And so that's, that's another, another uh, piece of advice I, I wish I had known much earlier in my career. And then it's something I've written about, but, and I was, I was fortunate to have learned this in college, but I, I only bring it up as a, as a piece of advice for leaders because um, everybody, I think there's this, this uh, belief that leaders have to have all the answers. And that if we don't know, and we, we actually admit that, that like people aren't going to trust us, they're going to think we're frauds, all these sorts of things. And it's okay to say, I don't know, right? And it's okay to say, this is how I'm thinking about it, or these are the questions that I have. But it is okay to say, I don't know. Um, and I think that builds trust, but it also um, creates opportunity for people to step up and rise to the occasion to support you. So um, yeah, that's, that, that's, I think that's what I would, th those pieces of advice are, are what I would give myself. Now I never know who's actually, <laughs> who's closing it, but super sound, um, super sound three points. I wish I would have had them when I started out. I definitely wholeheartedly support all three. It definitely counts, I think for my own journey as well. I, I really wish I would have had these tools and, and things become so much easier when you actually are more honest to yourself and, and others and you're more vocal about it. But for some reason, we really struggle to um, just kind of commit to ourselves in a way and just be real with ourselves. Um, I think it's really, really great, great advice. Um, Anthony, did you have anything to add? I think we're at the end. I think we're at the end, Steve. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I can only second everything Daria just said. Um, very actionable. Um, lots of reflection moments. And um, I'm sure our audience will feel the same. And, and just huge thanks for um, getting on the podcast, on the show, sharing the journey you've just been through super recently as well. I'm glad we got you while it's raw and fresh. And um, can't wait to see what you do in this next phase while you focus on, I guess, yourself, your family, but also the clients and, and um, leadership coaching. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, the plan is to dive into coaching and see where I, where the wind takes me. And everyone Beautiful. who wants to learn more from Steve about Steve, um, we'll be linking your Twitter uh, account, of course, below and also your personal website and your Medium account. But feel free to um, check all of that out. It's full of gems, full of learnings. And it's been an absolute pleasure to have you with us. I real feel, real feel, really feel honored. Oh, my God. So honored that I stumbled upon my words um, to have, yeah, had that conversation in a very special time. I think it's a very um, great momentum actually that you generated for yourself. And I uh, am truly happy and, and can't wait to see what comes out of it as well. Thanks so much. I appreciate that. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Teams at Work. Let us know what your thoughts are on today's episode. You can find us on Twitter at Daria Gutnick and at Anthony A. Rio or simply follow Bunch at Bunch underscore HQ. And don't forget, subscribe if you like the episode, because we always have interesting guests who join us and share valuable knowledge as well as actionable advice. Yeah, we're looking forward to hearing from you. Please do get in touch. At the beginning of the show, we did mention that we're building an AI leadership coach that helps you level up as a leader in just two minutes a day. 
Check us out on the Apple App Store and simply search Bunch Leadership Coach to find it. Try it out and let us know what you think. And that's a wrap. We are your hosts, Daria Gutnick and Anthony Rio, and we're excited to speak with you all soon. Till next time.